So we continue our study on sonship, being children of God, having God as our Father, and today we shift our attention to the book of Romans. When an orphan is adopted in our world, they experience some big changes. One of the biggest changes is the location where they live. Their environment, obviously, totally changes. And where we live has a giant impact on our lives, correct? Their diets change. Their schedule changes. Their friends change. Their caretakers change. The way they, discipline, they are disciplined changes, their world is turned upside down. Orphans that are adopted go from one world to a whole new world. One of the biggest problems associated with adoption of older children is they have a big problem transitioning to their new home. This is one reason I beg you to pray for the paperwork concerning Samuel. The transition could be harder every day that goes by, so please pray for him. Pray for the, uh, the paperwork to go through. We want to go to China tomorrow if possible. That can't happen, but it would be great so we could pick him up. Because the longer he's in China, the longer he's in that world, and the more that world is going to permeate who he is. Now, when we are adopted into God's family, there is a similar struggle. Many of us have come from pretty difficult circumstances. Maybe we weren't raised in homes where God was honored and feared. Selfishness reigned in that home. Parents ruled either with an iron fist, maybe some of you were beaten or mistreated, or they don't parent at all. They leave you to fend for yourself and you have to figure out how to do this world by yourself. Sin can have a huge influence on your life. We can be taught the exact opposite of what righteousness is. So, when we are adopted into God's family as His spiritual children, we don't know how to live. We have a problem being who we are in Christ. We don't understand what our heavenly, holy Father wants from us and how we should live. We may know we are forgiven, but we struggle with our previous identity. We are constantly thinking worldly thoughts of God. We may constantly be like the little kids adopted into a new family seeking love and not realizing that we are loved and that loved already and that God's grace is not earned, but it is something that he's always giving. We are, giving, we are given new hearts, but we struggle with the influence of our old life. And everybody in the room says what? Amen. Amen. On top of this, we remain in the world. So it's constantly reinforcing our old life. That world is constantly telling us our old life is really who we are. It's constantly telling us that. So, here's the question. Is righteousness even possible for adopted children of God? Is it even possible? Is sanctification, being set apart from the world, even achievable by children of God if they've been raised in a wicked environment? And before all of you say, amen, no problem, it'll happen. I want you to remember what the Apostle Paul said in the passage that we saw in Romans 7. He said what? Wretched man that I am. The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at passages that revealed our new identity in Christ is a key to our change. We are no longer spiritual orphans. We are adopted children of God. We have been redeemed from slavery to sin. We are now heirs according to the promises of God. 
We saw we are now alive with Christ. And the concept of regeneration will be developed further in the coming weeks. But today, we're going to move to another main reason why adopted children of God can be different from the world. And again, it's not just saying a truth in your mind over and over. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. It's more than just saying that. There has to be some real changes in order for us to live out this life as a child of God. And what we're going to see today is is that we can be different from the world. We can be set apart from the world. We can be different, and we'll see why in a little bit. Why children of God can be sanctified. Why we can be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy. Now, does that mean that we're going to be perfectly holy? No. But can we be different from the world? Can we be set apart from the world? Can we change? Can we look more like Christ? And the answer is an emphatic 100% amen, yes it can happen. How can it happen? Well, in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, we talked about how the believer in Jesus is sealed with the Holy Spirit. This means we have the mark of God's presence in our life. We have become the dwelling place of God. And this passage in Romans 8 talks about it. I didn't get to develop this theme very well in those first four weeks. I talked more about your identity. But today we're going to turn to this passage and understand that it talks extensively about the indwelling presence of God. This is, beloved... A crucial doctrine for us to understand. A part of our identity as children of God. We must understand the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Now, let's talk a little bit about the subject of the Holy Spirit. When we, when we speak on the subject of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence, brought up in Christian circles, it often comes, to, comes with this mystical element to it. We talk about the Holy Spirit, it's more of this idea of Him revealing Himself to us and revealing things to us. Statements like this are often made about the Spirit's presence. You tell me if you don't agree. He is that still voice in my head. He is the one that speaks in tongues through me. He is the one who verbally talks to me. The Spirit told me, drive to the bank and give some money to the church. He told me to talk to that person on the corner. He gave me a revelation of my future. He gave me a revelation of your future. He tells me to quit this job because the boss was mistreating me. I felt this warm presence of the Holy Spirit come over me. Beloved, this is what we're told all the time about the Holy Spirit. This is what, in many ways, the charismatic movement has started pushing on us, right? About the Holy Spirit. However, you know, the Scripture does not present our relationship with the Spirit this way. The Scripture doesn't. Now... Does that mean that the Spirit didn't come on prophets and give revelation? Yes, yes, I understand that. But as a whole, when you're talking about the epistles, the the letters that are written to the common Christian, the child of God, how are we supposed to view the Holy Spirit and what is He doing? What is His work all about? In fact, many ways the Spirit works in the children of God is not seen in what the Spirit reveals to the believer as much as what the Spirit produces in the believer. I'm going to say that again. Now listen closely. This is important. Many ways, the uh, the Spirit's work in the children of God is not seen in what the Spirit reveals to the believer as much as what the Spirit produces in the believer. Yes, he illumines. I'm not saying he doesn't illumine the word. But the primary work of the Spirit of God 
is sanctification. This is a crucial topic. This is a crucial understanding for all of us. Our passage today gives us a clear picture of how the Spirit of God works in the adopted children of God to produce sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which God takes and sets us apart and makes us look different than the rest of the world. It's the process by which we become holy. That word sanctification is tied to becoming holy. What is the main role of the Spirit of God in the child of God? To make you holy. Wow, this isn't what we're taught. This isn't what we're taught. We're taught it's about some emotional feeling. When in fact, if you want to really tell whether or not somebody's a believer or not, you look at their life and see how holy they are. This is it. So we briefly get the context of the passage. Let's get it. Let's walk down through it. The main theme of this book, and by the way, Mark has started doing something for me. He's reading the, the verses before the passage I'm going to do. And the reason why is to cut down on time and help me to get the context of the passage I'm going to focus on. I'm going to focus in on 12 to 17 today. Okay? But I want you to have the context so you understand. The main theme of the book of Romans is righteousness revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Righteousness. That word righteousness is mentioned all the way through the book of Romans. I would define righteousness as God's ways, His moral perfections, His moral thoughts and actions. What God does is moral actions. God's righteousness is revealed in the introduction to solid believers in Rome in, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And he summarizes this the whole book in 1, 16 and 17. I'm not going to read it, but if you want a summary of Romans, it's in 1, 16 and 17. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ applied to the believer's life. God's righteousness then is revealed in his just wrath against sinners and against sin. In chapter 1, verses 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. And then God's righteousness is revealed in his justification of sinners. Look at, uh, you don't have to go there, but in, in, in Romans 3, 21 to 5, 21, it's all about what? Being declared right with God. To be justified. Now, we're in this section in Romans chapter 8, right? Everybody look at your Bibles. Romans chapter 8. We're in the sanctification section. We're in the section that says, okay, now that you've been declared right, how are you going to live? What are you supposed to look like as long as you're in this world? In chapter 6 through chapter 8, verse 17, it's all about this process of God making us look like His Son, making us look righteous in the world. And then later on, he'll talk about glorification in 8, 18 to, 3 to 39. But so we're in this section on sanctification. And Paul revealed an enormous battle in chapter 7 in the believer, right? We are in these bodies that are still prone to sin. And I guess it would be the chapter in the Bible that I think I can most relate with. Anybody? Romans 7, I do what I wish I wouldn't do, and I don't do what I wish I would do. Anybody ever said that before? Anybody ever thought that before? How about this week? It's that chapter that concludes with verse 24 and 25 as Paul, as, as Paul, hey, you just got made Paul, Mark. As Mark just read, Romans chapter 7, verse 24, look at those verses again. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind 
am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. What is that? That's that spiritual war that we're all going through. We're in that constant battle, aren't we? We are battling with the desire. If you're a born-again believer, you have the desire to what? Obey. You have the desire to serve God. You have the desire to be holy. You just have the desire to be set apart from the world. But then you're also in these bodies of death and you're constantly letting your foot get in your mouth. Sticking your foot in your mouth. Doing crazy things. Saying wrong things. Not loving one another. So the, the reader is presented with, with what appears to be an impossible struggle. Much like what little Samuel will face when he's picked up from the orphanage and drove away from the orphanage. You have a new home. You have new parents. And what a world collision for him. Can you imagine? I remember one guy writing on uh, adoption said that as he took his two children away from the adoption uh, uh, orphanage, where they had been mistreated horribly, they looked out the back window and pleaded, No! Crying to go back to the orphanage. Why? Well, because we're in that world. That's all we know. That's all we think. That is our identity. So we have this battle, don't we? We go from being totally dead, lost orphans to born-again believers living in a world, and it's a collision because we're still in these bodies of death that have a tendency to want to do what? Sin. Samuel's world's going to be turned upside down. He will have a new dwelling place. He will have new people who care for him. And in a similar way, we are delivered from the bondage of sin. We are given a new dwelling place. We have a war, however, going on inside of us. We love God because he paid for our sin. He delivered us from bondage to sin. But we are still in these bodies of death. We do what we do, don't want to do, and we don't do what we want to do. So in chapter 8, Paul turns his attention to explain where our hope is found in light of this battle. And I think this is so crucial. I want you to understand your hope is ultimately found in God, not yourself. It's in what God does. So the question is, can we have victory while in these bodies of death that we carry around? Can we have victory? Can we be holy as our Father is holy? And Paul answers the question with this. What's he say? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul started this chapter by explaining the location of the genuine believer's victory is found in Christ. In 1 to 4, in 8, 1 to 4. Christ's victory has set us free from condemnation and the controlling principle of sin. Jesus did what we can't do, right? Everybody in the room says, good. Then, in 5 to 11, that is chapter 8, verses 5 to 11, Paul contrasts those of the flesh and those who are genuine believers in Christ. And he shows that the true believer has a different mindset than the Lord. He thinks on something different. The believer lives according to the Spirit. This is where the Holy Spirit is introduced into the sanctification process. This is where Paul says, okay, now let me explain to you something. You have hope. You have hope. Those that want to obey God, you have hope. And the reason why you have hope is because God has taken up his residence in your heart and in your soul. God himself, the Holy Spirit, dwells within you. And I believe it's here that we see the primary evidence of the Spirit's indwelling presence. This is it, folks. 
You want to tell me if somebody is a believer? I think this is the place. Their life. Whether or not they're holy. Whether or not they look like Christ. That's it. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells within the soul of the believer. Again, the charismatic churches often emphasize some mystical experience with the Spirit's work. But God's Word emphasizes holiness for the Spirit's influence. I believe there are two main results of the Spirit's indwelling presence. And I want you to listen closely. And I think we'll see this over and over. First, the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God makes people who make much of Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. How do I know this? Because the Spirit's favorite subject is Jesus Christ. So you want to know if somebody is indwelt by the Spirit, whether they're a child of God? If you want to know if you are a child of God, who do you make much of? If you make much of Jesus then you're going to what? That's the Spirit. Because the Spirit, working through Paul in Romans 8, 1 says what? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And begins to say, He took on a body. And did what we couldn't do. So we make much of who? Jesus Christ. Second, the indwelling person is all about becoming holy. Sanctified. He is the Holy Spirit, right, folks? The Holy Spirit. He makes holy people, set apart people. In fact, Paul clearly states the contrast is obvious in Romans 8. Yes, we are in a battle, beloved. But the Spirit is working to bring victory to our life. And the victory isn't getting rich, as the charismatic might say. The victory is holiness. Holiness. The mind set on the flesh is what? Death. But the mind set on the Spirit is what? Life and peace. And that peace is not some mystical peace. That's a peace with God. And understanding that God and me are right. We have a good relationship. That's what the Spirit produces in us. The mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, is what Paul says in this section. The lost or orphan, spiritually lost, do not submit to the ruling principles of God's righteousness. They do not. The lost do not want to obey. Do you understand me? They don't want to obey God. The dead person that is not indwelled by God is unable to submit to God's ruling principle. Beloved, if any of you in this room have not turned from your sin, you are in that condition. If you have not repented of your sins and embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior... You are unable to do good. You are unable to obey God. You must repent today. I call on you. Jesus came to die for sinners like you. Turn to Him. Cry out to Him. He will save you. And that salvation will not just be something that gets you a ticket to heaven. He will begin to make you holy. However, the true believer, the one who is trusting in Jesus, is in the spirit, not in the flesh. They exist in a different spiritual realm than the rest of the world. They are influenced by God himself. That's what all this section is talking about in 8, 1 to 11. The true believer is indwelt by the spirit of God as 8, 9 states. 
We are under the influence of the Spirit of God. And He indwells us to carry out His righteous ways. Again, in non-spiritual adoption, we are limited by the influence we can have. When we take Samuel in, we can't make Samuel believe and abide in his new relationship with his parents. We can't make it happen. And even more, we can't take him and make him do what? We can't make him be a believer in the God that we submit to in our house. We are totally unable to change hearts. Amen? But God did it. The true believer's body, we still live in these bodies, right? Is, and it's dead, it's dying, and we want it to die, don't we? Because of sin. But his spirit, we have a new heart. We're alive. And the spirit of God now lives within us. And we now do what? We live to righteousness. We want to honor him. So the true believer is indwelt by the all-powerful, life-giving spirit. And that's what we see in 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Oh, folks, this is a great verse, isn't it? We're alive. And the Spirit of God dwells within us. And that dwelling presence of God in us does what? It then what? Produces righteousness. And it helps us to act despite our bodies of death that we carry. And though we're in that tension, I do what I wish I wouldn't do and I think what I wish I wouldn't think, there's the Spirit of God that also dwells within there, within our soul, and He does what? He causes us to what? Put to death the deeds of the body and to live for righteousness' sake, to honor God, to be holy. Where is our victory? It's in the Spirit indwelling us. God works in His children, not just externally by giving you a message, preaching at you. But internally, God himself dwells within the soul of the believer and causes them to live righteously. Wow, isn't this true? Isn't this amazing? Now, I bet there's some of you in the room that somewhat struggled with some of the same things that I did this week. And that is, I sure don't feel it sometimes, God. I, I, I know your word says the spirit lives in me, but man, there's times where I just don't feel him. Yes? Anybody in here? Okay, so at that point, what have I fallen into? I've fallen into the very mysticism that I'm preaching against. What? Feeling the presence of God is not the answer. The answer is in the objective facts of God's word. The spirit has taken up dwelling residence in my soul. Why do I know this? Because I know there is now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. And my only hope is Christ. And I want to make much of him. And though I hate my sin, I put it to death by His grace. And the Spirit of God is working in me. Now, if you have no desire to exalt Christ at all, and you don't want to put to death sin in your life, then you should be afraid. I'm just being honest. That's what the Scriptures say. But if Christ is your Lord and you want to exalt him and holiness is what you pursue and want to do, then obviously the Spirit's living in you or you wouldn't be acting like that. You wouldn't think that way. This is good, isn't it? Are you encouraged, beloved? Sorry, I'm not usually asking questions like that to make you. Talk to me. 
just want to make sure you're on the same page. So in Romans 8, 12 to 17, you can tell we're not going to get through that whole section, right? It's probably going to take a couple weeks to get through all of this. But it's okay. Even if I go over the 12 weeks, I, I really think this is important for us. I really do. In Romans 8, 12 to 17, we see the active work of the Spirit of God is then explained. And we will examine the spirit of God's work in the adopted children of God. Let's read this next section in Romans 8, 12 to 17. So then, brethren, family language, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Everything was good until that last little phrase, right? If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Anybody in wanting some suffering? How many of you want some suffering? I promise you, by the end of the time that I finish preaching this passage and work through this, everybody in the room is going to say, if if you're a believer, is going to say, I want some suffering. You'll see why as we go along. That'll make you come back next week. This section is very similar to Romans chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. You don't have to turn there. But what Paul does is he lays out some truth about how we've, been, we've died with Christ and now alive. And so now you have to apply that truth to your life. You need to live a certain way. And he does it in a general fashion. So Paul gives a general application here in Romans 8, 12 to 17 of the doctrine that he established in the previous section, that we're indwelt by the Spirit. So this is how you should live in light of that. Notice he starts with, So then, brethren. With this spiritual family title, brethren, that means spiritual brethren. You understand that, right? Spiritual brethren, which means what? We're in Christ. God's our Father. We're brothers and sisters. In Christ. So then, brethren, Paul then gives a summary of the responsibilities and privileges of being indwelt by the Spirit of God. We're going to look what look at the responsibilities and privileges of being a part of the family of God. So let's start with verse 12 and look at one of these first responsibilities. It says, We are not under obligation to the flesh. We are not under obligation to the flesh. Notice it says, So then, brethren, we are under, under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now, here, folks, listen closely. Paul starts with the negative. They are not obliged or obligated to live according to the flesh. Believers, children of God, those who have trusted in Christ, we are not obligated to do what the fleshly body wants us to do. We don't have to do that. This means being in the Spirit, having the Spirit of God dwelling in us, means that we are free from the bondage of sin. We have a responsibility to avoid letting the effects of our old man control us. Do you understand that? You have an obligation to not sin. You have an obligation to not sin. 
Why? Because we can. If you're a believer, you can what? Not sin. Isn't that good news? You don't have to sin. All Christians say, Amen. Great. You excited? You don't have to sin. <laughs> good news. All indwelt believers are no longer under the slavery and captivity of our old sin nature. Yes, we are still affected by the flesh, but it is no longer our master. We have a new master, a new Lord, a new Father. Paul does not specifically state the implied opposite of this, but that brings us to our second, and it's implied, it's obvious. We are obligated what? To live by the Spirit. That's implied by the verse. And then developed in verse 13 when he says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So here we see because for... So Paul gives the further explanation of why we are not obligated to live by the flesh, but instead we are obligated to live by the Spirit. He gives why. And he explains the obligation by contrasting the dead and the living. Who are the dead and who are the living? Notice the contrast. He says, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Your direction is what? Death. If you are living driven and controlled by your own sinful desires, then you must die. Why? Because God's holy. God does not take sin lightly. We must die. We're headed for separation from God. If we're living according to the flesh and God, our sin nature controls us and that's all we do, we're bondage, we're headed towards death. The judgment of God hangs over every lost person's soul in this place. But all indwelt believers are no longer under the slavery and captivity of our old sinful nature. Praise God, right? Yes, we are still affected by the flesh, but it is no longer our master. We have a new master. Paul does not specifically state but it's implied. And he, then notice he, he explains it here. He says, second, the contrast. But if living according to the Spirit, you will live. You will live. Now, I took out the section there, but you'll see, and I'll develop it in a second. Ultimately, we see, if we live by me, or if by means of the Spirit we are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, folks, this is just a little hint to that last verse that I hit it to just a second ago. How many of you want to suffer? Everybody in here better be all about suffering. <laughs> because if you're not, you're not a child of God. See, see, believer, listen to me. We're all about dying all the time. We're all about suffering, aren't we? If you aren't suffering, you're not a child of God and suffering will come. Let's look at this a little closer. This life we as believers should be living. Two main elements. The believer has the Spirit's enablement. It says, by means of the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. By means of the Spirit? By means of his work in your life, you are empowered to kill sin. To say no to your old man. He works in you powerfully. Again, I can't stress this enough. This is a huge difference from the charismatic movement, right? This is totally opposite. This isn't what we hear at all. And it's also a, 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 a difference from earthly adoption, too. That's why I would say that the adoption picture doesn't always fit perfect. 
This is one of them that it doesn't fit perfect. Because, beloved, as much as I want to help my kids love Jesus and honor him, I'm not the spirit of God. How many of you parents, any, any parents in here, had a, you tell your kid, don't do that? And they do it again. Please don't do that. And they do it again. And you say, oh, I think I'm going to have to spank them because the only way they're going to stop doing it is if I spank them. So I'm going to have to give them a spanking. I love you. Let me explain. I'm going to do this because I love you. You have to learn to obey because if you don't, it's going to be ugly in this world. If you don't submit to authorities, it's going to be ugly. So I've got to spank you. And you spank them. And they do it again. And you say, wait, 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 wait. Did you just do the very thing I told you not to do? And you spank them again. And they say, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's painful. And then two weeks later, they do it again. And all the parents in the room say, oh, I don't have that problem. Only the pastor has that problem. And then you realize you are your children. What makes us different? What makes us really repent and turn to God and forsake those sins? The Spirit of God that dwells within us. Do you know how many times I've, I've prayed, God, please save their hearts. Spirit, work in them. That's the only way it's going to work. I'm cleaning up the outside of the cup way more than I want to. Oh, beloved, listen to me. Righteousness happens in the life of the believer because the Spirit of God empowers us to put to death sin. Because all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons and daughters of God. This is one of those distinguishing marks of children of God, right? That makes us different from the world. You know, again, I've said this countless times over the last four weeks. I'm trying to tell you, when you look at the world, you say to the world, you think of the world, you say, oh, they need to stop doing what they're doing. Why are they acting this way? And we forget that the only reason why we don't is because what? The Spirit of God works within our soul to help us not to do it. How can we expect the world to act like Christians if they don't have the Spirit of God dwelling within their soul? Beloved, you ask the question, why does our world look so bad? And I answer the question because the Spirit of God does not dwell in them. Why do we expect the world to act like Christians? They don't want to act like Christians because they have not been indwelt by God. But we are different. All too often I think we're so much like an adopted children wanting to go back to the orphanage and clean it up. I want to go back to that orphanage and I want to make it like my new home. You can't. The only way this happens is by means of the Spirit. 
So what is the way the Spirit does this? How does He empower us to put to death sin? Well, His weapon of choice is what? The Word of God. The Word of God. As you put the Word of God and read the Word of God, what's the Spirit of God do? He takes His weapon and He slices and dices us, doesn't He? He changes us, doesn't He? He wields that weapon on our soul, doesn't He? Have you felt that weapon this morning yet? And He works within our regenerate hearts that He gave to cause us to avoid fleshly desires. We remember those verses. Those verses that say, put off the old man. We remember those things that say, don't engage in immorality. Why? Because the Spirit of God is implying the Word of God to our souls to cause us to what? Put to death the deeds of the body. When we make being filled with the Spirit a mystical experience, however, we ultimately undermine His main role. He makes us holy, but we make it all about how we feel. Let me ask you a question. Is it fun to put to death the deeds of the flesh? Does it feel good? Now, there's, there's, there's many times where our, our flesh lies to us and says, Oh, that would be fun. That would be delightful. Does it feel good to say, No, you're enough, Jesus. Even though I don't see you, you're better than that. It's not always easy. And that's not always pleasant. You want to know whether or not the Spirit of God's dwelling within you? Do you hate sin? Do you hear that? That's very important that you understand that this is not just a one-sided thing. We're not going to just sit down and say, huh, I think I'm going to let the Spirit kill some sin this week. I'm going to hang out in my easy rider chair, flip through some channels, and see how many channels he makes me pass. Isn't that us? We're the let go and let God people that we don't want to admit. And then when we fall in sin, we say, well, why didn't you, God? Why didn't you rescue me from that? What is that? That is blasphemy. That is mocking God. Oh, beloved, get this. The second element is, is the believer puts to death the sin also. Colossians 3, 5 through 9 states this. Listen, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you lay aside the old self with its evil practices. Beloved, put to death immorality, impurity, sinful passions, evil desires. That is our call for the week. Do you hear me? And listen, I don't give you a command. I don't give you this command from Scripture without knowing that you are empowered to be able to do it. Say no to sin. Why? Because the Spirit of God has the same goal in your life. And that's what he's going to do. How do we put to death these specific areas of sin? 
Obviously, we can't by ourselves, but with him we can do it, right? So, I, I want to give this, I'll spend the last five minutes on this. I want to give you some real practical ways to kill sin in your life, okay? These are good, beloved. Write them down. I got them from all kinds of different sources. Not myself. I'm not smart enough to come up with any of this. By the way, just so you understand, understand this. Most of the stuff I'm telling you, this didn't just arrive in my thought process. I read it from another book. Other commentators, other people that love God much more than me. I'm being honest. We're all a work in progress, right? But let's look. So what does sin slaying look like? How many of you want to be a sin slayer? How many of you are ready for suffering now? You ready? This is what it looks like. Expose yourself to God's righteousness. Expose yourself to God's righteousness. Put sermons, listen to sermons, Bible studies, personal accountability partners, church fellowship. Church fellowship, by the way, is not this thing where we get together and sing kumbaya and, wow, this is cool. And it's also not getting together and talking about basketball. You can talk about basketball, but it can't be your main idea. Come on, folks. Church fellowship is for us to get together and what? Yeah. Amen, Wes. Make much of God. Exalt the king. But expose yourself. Put yourself close to people that are what? Going to speak truth to you. Hear truth. Second, recognize the sin as rebellion against your father. All too often, what we do is we take sins and we categorize them. We say, well, you know, I've got this problem with pride, but it's not that bad. At least I'm not committing immorality. Wrong! And then some, some of us in the room look at other people and say, man, that person's got a real problem with pride. But then go home and worry. All the time. Let me ask you a question. Is worry sin? Oh, yes, it is, beloved. It's a rebellion against God. It says, I don't trust the sovereign God. Recognize your sin for what it is. That's what sin slayers do. They own it. Third, apply the word of God to our sinful behavior. That is, study, meditate, memorize what God's word says about the sins that we struggle with. Put scripture into your mind on the subject. If you have a problem with immorality, I promise you, there's plenty of verses in scripture for you to put in there to help you fend it off. If you have a problem with worry, there's almost a whole chapter on that in Matthew 6. So we must apply the word of God that we might not sin against him, right? Pray for the Father's help in mortifying sin. Look, the Spirit lives within you. Call out to Father. I think this whole section talks about this. We'll get to it next week more. But at the whole point is, is that how do you have, how do you avoid being that wretched man that I am? Who will set me free from this body of death? Answer, Christ Jesus. Who will set me free from this body that is unholy? The Holy Father through the Holy Spirit. Because of His Holy Son. This is good, isn't it? Pray, seek Him. Beg Him to change you. 
resolved by the grace of God to kill sin. We must commit to obeying the Father. This is what repent and believe is all about. We must trust Him. Trust that He will give us deliverance in these areas. Mortify that sin. Be resolved to mortify that sin. Kill that sin. What does Jesus say? If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If you have a problem with pornography and watching it on internet, chuck the TV. Throw it away. Go back to the dark ages. Resolve to kill it, no matter what. This is what sin slayers do. Confess your sins to one another. James 5.16 Tell other people. And by the way, when you tell other people, don't tell other people like this. Oh, yeah, I blew it the other day. Oh, I'm sorry, brother. I'll pray for you. How'd you blow it? Well, you know, I, you know, I just saw some stuff. Yeah, what'd you see? You know, just some stuff on the internet. But I turned it off after a couple minutes. Oh, but what exactly did you see? Boy, our accountability is not like that, is it? Our accountability is like this. Oh, I struggle with that too. I'm sorry, brother. I'll pray for you. Is that biblical accountability? That's like, yeah, I'm going down in the ship too. Hey, I get it. Let's just ride the Titanic to the bottom of the ocean together. Isn't that us? Beloved, that is not accountability. How about this? Can you imagine if your friend, the next time they confess something to you, you said, okay, look, I understand we all are sinners. This is really rough. We're in a war. I want to tell you the Spirit can help you, and I'm here for you. I'm going to walk through this with you. And I'm going to pray for you. And listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down on paper all the things that you watched and all the things you did. Write them down. Give me the explicit details. Do you want to read that? Not really. Not looking forward to it. However, you've got to bring it out to the light. And if you've got a problem with viewing some kind of pornography issue, then what you're doing is shaming the matchless name of God. And you need to know what you're doing. This is what sin slayers do. They turn the lights on. Do you think the Holy Spirit wasn't with you? Do you think he just kind of, maybe he exits the building when you get into your funk? By the way, that goes from everything from there to what? Complaining hearts. Grumbling spirits. And then finally, and where our hope is found, abiding your relationship with God. Which, if you don't know, that's what we're going to talk a lot about next week. Abiding your relationship with God. Thank you, folks, for listening. I know I hammered you. Just so you know, I want you to understand that this was very painful for me too. Don't think I've arrived. 
know I'm that wretched, I know I'm that wretched man of Romans 7, fully aware, but there is some amazing hope in these verses, aren't there? We have the Spirit of God living within us. And we can put to death sin in our life. All of us should be encouraged by that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your word. Father, we have so far to go. And oh, Lord, so many times we're like those, those little orphans driving away from the orphanage, crying and screaming, oh, take me back, take me back. Oh, God, have mercy on our souls. Please, Father, help us, God. Help us, Abba, Father, to put to death sin in our life. Help us to be intentional sin slayers, trusting in your spirit to empower us to be who you want us to be. Thank you for your grace and kindness towards us. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.